All right, all right, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat when you can. We're going to get started here. Love hearing all the, all the good chatter out there and warm welcomes happening. So good to see you. Um, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at FBC and just want to say welcome. We're so glad you chose to join us for our service this morning. Go ahead, if you would, and open your Bible to Psalm 73. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you. And if you're grabbing one of those, it's page 271, so you can find it quickly. Um, as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark just a little bit at a time, kind of verse by verse for a while now. And we actually only have four weeks of the Gospel of Mark left. And so we're going to wrap that up in the month of December during the season of Advent. And so that leaves us today with just kind of a standalone Sunday where we're going to press the pause button on Mark and jump to Psalm 73 as we kind of prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. And so that's where we're going to be. As we prepare to jump in, would you join me in another word of prayer? Father, we are so uh, grateful to be here today. And as Ryan just pray, prayed, Lord, I, uh, I echo the same sentiment, Lord. We have every reason to praise you. You are so good and kind and faithful and so, Lord, we ask now for your help as we jump into your word. Lord, we know that we need your spirit to guide us and open our eyes and help us see and understand what we read. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears. Lord, teach us, change us, shape us more and more into your image. We give you this time. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the Christmas season is upon us, isn't it? Thanksgiving has come and gone. It's now officially acceptable to listen to Christmas music. Those of you that have been listening to it for some time now, shame, shame on you. Now is the time. That's an official word from the pulpit. It's okay to listen to Christmas music now. Really, I um, uh, love the Christmas season. Of course, it brings times of great joy, traditions, uh, family time, shopping. Maybe some of you got in on Black Friday just a couple days ago. In first service, I said Good Friday, and everyone was like, Good Friday shopping, that's not a thing. But I meant Black Friday, which is a strange time. The internet reminded me that it's a day of the year where we go out and we trample other people and fight them for cheap consumer products at mere hours after being grateful for what we already have. It's a very strange day, but maybe you were able to jump in on the fun. But that gets kind of to the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning, and that's the idea of being content in the Christian life. How do we find true, lasting joy and peace and satisfaction as Christians? This can be challenging. Especially this time of year, again, where it's a season about uh, purchasing things and it reminds us of things that we don't have or maybe things that we once had and have lost. The holidays are a sensitive season. But year-round, this is an issue for us, trying to find lasting joy. Financial guru Dave Ramsey said that we often buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. 
And so we're constantly trying to fill this void in our hearts in a number of ways, and that is only highlighted this time of year. And so we as Christians have to think, how are we to find lasting contentment and joy in the Lord? And so we're going to look to Psalm 73 as our guide. It's this text that was written thousands of years ago, and yet it still so clearly speaks to our hearts today. So let's jump in. Verse 1 says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So these verses kind of set up the rest of the psalm. You see the author saying, surely God is good, can affirm with my mind, I know that God is good, and yet I almost stumbled, and yet there was this tension, this conflict in my heart. I almost lost my footing. Why? Verse 3, it says, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's envious. He looks around at the prosperity of others, and he realizes all the things that he doesn't have. Envy is this feeling of discontent, feeling resentful, this this bitterness that wells up inside of us when we look around at other people's possessions or lot in life or the good fortune of others in contrast to our own lives. I mean, simply put, we see that others have things that we want. And we see why the author is envious. He gets a little more specific, you see, as the text continues in verse 4. He's looking around and he says, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. All right, so what do we see in the text? Verse 4, these people, they have no struggles. They're healthy. They're strong. They're well-fed. Verse 5, they're free from troubles and common burdens that many people have to endure. And verse 12 kind of summarizes it all. It says, they're free from worries always free of care. They increase in wealth. I mean, these people are healthy. They're wealthy. They're well-fed, stress-free, proud in all of this, even though, notice, they mock God. They want nothing to do with God. They're scoffing and speaking against God, right? Verse 6, they're proud. Verse 7, they have calloused, hard hearts. Verse 8, they're, they're scoffing. They're violent. And even verse 11, they're saying, does God know everything, know anything? This God, this Most High, who, who, who is He? What does he, can He even do? 
And so the author of the psalm is looking at this and he's saying, this doesn't make any sense. Right? This doesn't add up. These people want nothing to do with you, God. They're mocking you to your face. And look at the blessings that they enjoy in this life. Again, they're healthy. They're, they're wealthy. They're, they're well-fed. They're at ease. And so envy wells up in his heart. You see, he's not content with his life. See, we all have in our hearts a picture of what the good life is. And it might differ from person to person, but we have this idea of what someone really living, really making it, really living the good life it's supposed to look like. And so the author of the psalm has that, and he says, well, it's about health and wealth and ease and being stress-free and being uh, joyful in all these things. And he's saying, they're living the good life, but I'm not. It's interesting. I think if I were to name this psalm for today, I would call this the Facebook psalm or the Instagram psalm. I can almost picture the author as he's writing this, just kind of like scrolling on his phone through Instagram or through Facebook and just getting irritated and, and bitter at all the things that he sees, like, oh, my friend Jim bought a nice new car. Or, oh, Sarah took her kids to Europe again. Oh, that's great. Or, oh, Joe got a promotion. Or, oh, that nice couple, they just bought a house. Or, oh, my friend Kevin is engaged. I'd love to be engaged. Or, they just had kids. I'd love to have kids. Or, wow, her fiancé just brought her flowers again. Wow, all these things that I don't have, and you're seeing it in other people. Online, you're scrolling through, and envy is welling up in your hearts. And he's bitter about it. I know I've seen that in my own life. I'll go on social media and scroll, and after a few minutes, you're just, you're just mad. You're just like angry and you're irritated, but you don't exactly know why because you've just been hit with like a dozen or two different things that are kind of irking you emotionally, and it just leaves you in kind of a bad mood. Or maybe I'm the only one who can relate with that, and you guys are all immune to the struggles of social media. It's okay. You can pray for me. Um, <clears throat> But it's not just social media, right? We, we look around. Even before social media was around, we had envy and comparison and looking at uh, other people's families and the vacations they go on and how well their kids are doing or how healthy things seem to look for them. And we are, are burdened with the reality that that's not the way we're living right now. And why don't we get to enjoy those things? And so envy is in our hearts. Maybe you can relate. Friends making more money than us, healthier than we are, going on better vacations, less struggles in parenting, less struggles with their kids while we seem to flounder a little bit. And so the author sees this and he concludes quite profoundly in verse 13, taking all this into consideration, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. See what he's saying? I have obeyed God in vain. It's all been a waste. Following God, trying to be faithful to what he wants me to do, what good has that done for me? Look at my life. Because all these other people, Lord, seem to have all these blessings and all these good things, and they don't care about you at all. But I'm here, slaving away each day, following you, and it's been in vain. What good has it done me? I'm not living the good life. 
Now, I, I love his honesty here. I love that he's willing to express the, the depths of his heart. Because I think if we're honest, sometimes we can relate with what he's feeling. And that sentiment, but we're not always willing to voice it. So we kind of bury it or we ignore it or pretend that it's not there. And we know the right things to say. Or we talk about how, yeah, we're okay, we're fine, we're good, I'm trusting in God. And yet deep down there's maybe this bitterness welling up within us. This, this envy of what others have and we're not always willing to voice it. And so I love that he's just willing to say, this is where I am. This is the darkness of my heart. God, I'm not sure following you is really worth it. I'm not sure you're really satisfying in the way that you say you are. I'd rather have this honesty than someone just faking it, lying to our face, saying everything is all right. This way at least we can say, hey, okay, let's, let's talk about it. Here's where I am. Okay. So what do we do when we find ourselves in verse 13 of Psalm 73, where we're saying, what good has this following God done me? It's all been a waste. It's all been in vain. How do we respond to that? Because I think we would agree that that's not where we want to end today, right? Like, that's not how we want the sermon to conclude. Like, I'm envious of all these things that other people have, and Lord, I'm not sure following you is really worth it. It's all been in vain. What a waste. Merry Christmas. See you next week. You know, let's close in prayer. No, I think we'd agree that, okay, Lord, what do we do with that? How do we respond when we feel that deep in our hearts? Thankfully, he continues. The psalm doesn't end in verse 13, so we can read on and see how he responds. Verse 16 says this, when I tried to understand all this, right, he's thinking about all the prosperity he sees around him, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So you see, he starts in verse 16. He's troubled. I'm not sure how to understand this or make sense. It doesn't add up, Lord. But then, verse 17, then he has a change in perspective. He says, I understood their destiny. And he's talking about judgment that's coming. You see, it's pretty harsh language about the, the destruction and, and devastation that comes to those who don't know the Lord. And this is kind of an uncomfortable topic for some of us to explore, but it's here in the text. And so what changes his perspective is he stops thinking just about this life in just the temporary circumstances, and he gains an eternal perspective, thinking about the life to come as well. And so for those that don't know you, Lord, he talks about destruction, talks about judgment, and the reality that we all will stand before God one day, a holy God, a righteous God, a perfect God. And the scriptures tell us that none of us will be able to stand on our own merit. None of us will be approved and signed off on by God simply by our own works. And so the author says, things might not look good for me now, but I have an eternal hope. 
right, that my life is secure and safe with the Lord. He doesn't have to look forward to future judgment with fear because he knows that God rescues those who put their trust in him. God forgives those who turn to him. God is gracious and merciful, not because the author of the psalm is a better person or has more to commend their own moral record, because the Bible talks about how we all are in the same boat, worthy of death, worthy of separation from God forever, and yet God mercifully, with great grace and kindness, forgives and welcomes anyone who would trust in him. And so the author here gains an eternal perspective, right? that I have life with God now and forever. And so even if God does nothing else for me, even if he gives me no other good thing in this life other than salvation and forgiveness and a relationship with him, then that is enough. And I will still praise him forever and ever, for he is good. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just, hey, they're living the good life now. I'll live it later. No, do you see? He, he redefines what the good life is. He redefines the good life now. Verse 23, look how he continues. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he's saying, I'm actually, I'm living the good life now. Now I'm actually experiencing the good life. Why? Because he knows the Lord. Because he's with God. He guides me, he says. He holds me by my right hand. There's nothing I desire besides him. He is my strength. He is my portion, not earthly things. And so even if my body breaks down, even if my family falls apart and comes to nothing, God, you are what I need. And I look to you for my strength and my comfort and my contentment. So he reorients his beliefs around what the good life is. And he says, ultimately, the good life is not about money. It's not about nice vacations or health or ease or comfort or prosperity. He says the good life is life with God. I don't bring this up, we don't look at this to, to make you feel guilty about the good things that you enjoy, because we all have comforts and good things in our lives. And so the point is that it's not that we should be embarrassed or guilty about enjoying uh, health and nice vacations and, and family and unity and, and all those good things. That's not the point, but the point is that the root of our joy is not in those things. Right? The root of our joy and contentment is not found in circumstances or, or stuff or experiences. It's found only in the Lord. And so we can look around with great joy and contentment in our hearts because we're already rich. We already have everything that we need in Christ. And so we're not threatened or worried about what other people have or don't have because we already have more than enough and more than we deserve. I mean, isn't it an amazing truth that the eternal Creator God, the sovereign God of all eternity, 
has drawn close to us and welcomes us home as his children, invites us into his presence, forgives our sins, calls us sons and daughters, welcomes us home and celebrates us and brings us joy and peace. John Piper put it this way. He said, no thing can satisfy the soul because the soul was made to stand in awe of a person, the only person worthy of awe, God himself. And God loves us by liberating us from the bondage of self so that we can enjoy knowing and admiring God forever. And so, we can respond to a lack of contentment in our heart by reminding ourselves that the good life is life with God. And I hope and pray that maybe you've experienced that reality in your own life. Times of intimacy with God in prayer where you know that he is with you. Maybe in really hard times in your life, you've sensed God's presence comforting you, drawing near when you were brokenhearted. Maybe it was costly to follow Jesus for you at certain points. But there was joy in in obedience, joy in choosing to walk with the Lord, even amidst that conflict and those challenges. Maybe you've seen incredible things uh, as God works through you to, to love and to bless other people, or you've been in community and friends have reminded you of who you are in Christ or reminded you of who God is, and there's, there's joy there. Not that things are always going to be easy or up and to the right, but life with God as we walk with Him, He does bring us lasting joy that goes beyond circumstances. Now, it's possible we're talking about all this this morning, and maybe this all sounds foreign to you. Sounds weird. Or like something that you maybe have never experienced yourself. And there could be a number of reasons that that is the case. And we don't have time to go into all of them. But one possible reason is that we have a tendency to maybe settle sometimes for a kind of shallow, cheap, easy Christianity. A faith where God does not require much of us. So it's really low commitment, low risk really comfortable. God sets the bar real low for you. You know, just come to church every once in a while and you'll be good. But it's no wonder that, that, that a cheap, kind of counterfeit, shallow faith does not bring true, lasting joy. It should not surprise us because if we think about the good things in our lives, the relationships, maybe the careers, maybe the projects we've worked on, the good things that we enjoy are often the things that are costly, where there's a great investment that we've put in with time or energy in those relationships. And so things that are good and satisfying often are the things that are hard and and are costly and take some kind of investment from us. And so it's no different with the Lord because didn't Jesus say, whoever loses his life for me will find it? Whoever gives his life away for my sake and for the gospel will truly find life. I mean, he didn't say, whoever thinks about me every once in a while will find true, lasting joy. Whoever gives me a a little bit of their time. I mean, could you just come to church every once in a while? Could you just give, the bar is down here. Could you just do that? That person will find true, deep joy in the Lord. 
No, he says, whoever is all in for me, that's where they will find life. That's who will find true, lasting joy. We could think about this in relationship to food. Some of you have been to McDonald's, big McDonald's fan, big fast food fan. Ask my wife. I've never met a fast food restaurant that I don't love, deeply love. I mean that. Um, and, but you can go to McDonald's, and you should, and get um, you know, a, a cheap hamburger or a cheeseburger. And it costs you what? A dollar? What's a McDouble cost nowadays? I don't know, $1.50, something like that. And you get a cheap meal, right? It's easy, it's quick, cheap, doesn't cost you very much, and there, you got lunch. But if we're honest, that meal is not always the most satisfying or filling. You find yourself hungry pretty quick afterwards or maybe regretting that you ate it for a little bit, right? Um, Now, compare that to Red Robin. Come on. Red Robin, love me some Red Robin. A little bit more expensive than McDonald's, right? A burger at Red Robin, 10, 11, 12 dollars, plus you get the fries on the side. Love Red Robin, delicious, right? You eat that burger, it costs more. But it's filling, satisfying. You're going to be full for a little while longer. You're not going to want to eat for a few hours after you go to Red Robin and eat that burger and fries, right? And so compare those two. Sometimes we want McDonald's Christianity. It's cheap. It doesn't cost us much, but there's not as much joy or lasting fulfillment. And when we really need Red Robin Christianity, can I get an amen? I mean, we're, we're preaching now, people. Come on. Red Robin Christianity, really, it's, it's costly, but it's filling, it's satisfying, and there's great joy there. So I, I think that we all need to consider, are we taking steps of faith with the Lord? That might be costly. It might be a little bit risky. But God expects something of us, and yet in doing so, we find true life and find true joy in walking with him in it. And so the author of Psalm 73 reaches that place, and a lot of us want to be there, but notice there's a a hinge, a turning point in the text that allowed him to get there, to to realize these things about God. You notice it maybe back in verse 16 and 17. He said this, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Right? He was considering the prosperity of all these people. They don't care about you, God. And look at all the good things they have, and I don't have those things. It troubled him deeply to consider that. Verse 17, Until I entered the sanctuary of God. It was troubling to me, but then I entered the sanctuary of God. That's when it changes. And so what's he doing? When did his perspective change? It's when he engaged in worship. He went to the sanctuary of God and he worshiped God. He turned his eyes to the Lord. That's what changed his perspective. See, whether we're in church or at the mall, or at home, watching TV, on our phones, whatever we're doing, we are being shaped and formed into a certain kind of person. And we're absorbing and being formed by the values and the the attitudes of the things that we engage in and the things that we look at. Again, whether we're shopping at the store, shopping online, or going for a walk, or spending time with family, or at school, we are being formed into people that value certain things. We become what we behold. That that we that which we continually put in front of us, we begin to look more like it. 
and be shaped into its image, which is kind of a scary thing when you realize the average adult spends two and a half hours a day on their phone, me included. But so, if that's true, that we become what we behold, then when we behold God and turn our eyes to him and worship, what happens? We begin to be shaped into the type of people who love and value God, who desire what God desires, who look more and more like God and celebrate him. See, worship changes us when we start to look at God and realize who he is. And by worship, I don't just mean singing. I don't just mean songs. That's part of it. But worship is a, a lifestyle where we give of ourselves to God in, in prayer, out in our homes, out at, at work, a life fully devoted to him, serving God, loving others in his name, giving sacrificially. And yes, the corporate worship service on Sunday when we gather together to lift up the name of Jesus, to make much of him, to look at him and his glory together. When we worship, it reminds us who God is, reminds us what God has done, reminds us of this eternal perspective, this bigger picture that sometimes running around in the world we, we miss and we lose sight of. So that's why we need worship. Without it, we end up back at the beginning of the psalm, envious, bitter, looking around at what other people have. Without worship, we end up just looking at ourselves and the things we do or don't have, and we get frustrated. But when we worship, we get a picture of who God is. And we're reminded that the good life is life with God. That's why at FBC, it's our, our hope that our worship services really just scream, look at Jesus. I mean, that's really what we hope to leave you with this morning and every morning is look at Jesus. Not look at that pastor or that staff or that nice building or those great little mini quiches that were so good. We don't want to leave you with that. Really, we want to leave you with look at Jesus. Look at this glorious God that we know and serve that loves you. What an amazing truth. It's when we behold his glory that changes us and transforms us. And so it's really not my hope to be here to really to entertain you or to give you some life tips and tricks from some inspirational spiritual guru. That's not why I'm here or who I am. My goal and the goal of really anyone who speaks from up front here is to point us to Jesus. Say, look at Jesus. Look at how good he is. Look at what he has done, that we might worship him together. And sometimes, even in church, but often in life, it's like we, we go to the Grand Canyon, but we stay in the parking lot. Think about that. Wouldn't that be a shame? You go to the Grand Canyon, you make that drive, but then instead of getting out of the car, walking up to the edge and that vista, the viewpoints that they have, and, and really taking in the beauty and the majesty, and the greatness, and the glory of what stands in front of you? Wouldn't it be so tragic to go there and then just stay in the car, in the parking lot, and like scroll on your phone, or, or look in the mirror, like, you know, doing your makeup, or checking your teeth, or something? You just stay for like an hour in the car, looking at yourself, or looking at other people, and being mad about what other people have, rather than getting out of the car, going to the edge, and looking at the Grand Canyon, and standing in awe of this transcendent beauty that's in front of you. How tragic would it be if we came to church and just kind of looked at each other, 
Or I just kind of like gave you a little pep talk and made you feel real good about you. You're awesome. You're great. No, that's not why we're here. We're here to, to look at God, right? To get out of the car, to go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and stand in awe together. That's not just our goal here, but as we go out through life, right? To be engaging in God's word and in community that we would regularly be reminded of who God is, how glorious and beautiful and unparalleled he is. Although this psalm is part of the Old Testament, I do want you to see clearly how it points us forward to Jesus, right? There's two things the author realizes that changes his perspective. One, I'm actually living the good life now because God is with me. And two, I am going to be living the good life for all of eternity, right? I look at the life to come with great joy and expectancy because I've been forgiven of my sins and don't have to fear judgment from the Lord. So both of those things are fully and finally made possible because of Jesus and the work of Christ in his death, life, death, and resurrection. See the first one. God is with us now. 2 Corinthians tells us that through Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself. That our relationship with God was was repaired. It was broken. But through Jesus, we were forgiven of our sins and adopted into the family of God. And now we know him. And he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he hears our prayers. We have new hearts and his presence in our lives. We get to enjoy him and his comfort and his presence now because of Jesus. But also as we look forward at the life to come, Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we can face uh, eternity with confidence. We'll stand before one God one day and be declared righteous, not because of our own good deeds, not because we're better than other people, but simply because we put our faith in Jesus and his righteousness And his cleansing and his forgiveness will be upon us. And so we can look forward with confidence because of Jesus. We take great joy in that. And that's really the heart of the gospel message, right? Reconciliation. Reconciled to God, to knowing him now and forever. Forgiven of sins. Freedom from sin and death. New life. Adoption into his family. And every good thing comes because of Jesus. And so it's my hope that as we enter this season of Advent, this season of Christmas shopping, this season of time with family and friends and everything that it brings, we would be a people that are so convinced that the good life is life with God. And we can know God because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thus we can say, as Psalm Psalm 73 verse 28 ends with these words, As for me... It's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you this morning for your word. It challenges us. It convicts us. It reminds us of who you are. And Lord, we're just so grateful, grateful for what you have done to save us, Jesus. Thank you for your incredible love and mercy and kindness to us. Thank you that we can be adopted into your family to be called your sons and daughters because of what you've done, Jesus. We worship you this morning. We praise you and thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.